Tonight, Tales from the Crypt. The Amicus, not Hammer, but very close, those two companies in people's perceptions. 1972 compendium movie. One of several that were made by Amicus. I'm not going to do them in order because I will do most of them because I love them. But um, I won't do them in order. I'm going to do them as they as they um, occur to me. So this one's sort of slap bang in the middle. And it's a great movie for many reasons. It's also an easy to watch movie. As I say, made in 72. Directed by Freddie Francis, um, with a very warm, warm way. Freddie Francis, who did a lot of Amicus movies, did The Skull, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors for, for um, Amicus, and also um, for Hammer, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, which is a, a film I really like too. And uh, this one did really well at the box office. Had a, uh, had a budget of around 170000 uh, high, it's thought for, for that company at that time, but um, it's thought made back in the millions. So, you know, it works really well. And uh, this is the reason why we've got so many compendium movies, because you get more bang for your buck, don't you? So, what about the plot? Well, it's a, a fruity plot. It's a, quite a ridiculous plot, but it's a ne- necessary plot. Five strangers who are travelling somewhere, each separately, suddenly arrive in some catacombs. When we see them first being taken through the catacombs by some kind of guide who you don't see close up, but you can clearly hear it's Geoffrey Bailden, great actor who's, of course, I don't want to spoil anybody, and spoiler alert, but he's Dr. Star in Asylum, um, and also was Cat Weasel in the 1970s on TV. Love, love Geoffrey Bailden. Lots more films, great actor. And um, he is taking them through the catacombs, then leaves them, and is replaced by a gentleman wearing a cowl or a monk's cowl, a sort of a, a, a bit of a mystical figure, played again very fruitily. And I suspect and believe this actor uh, did generally play in a fruity manner by Ralph Richardson. Now, there's a big hitter. So the movie is saying very early on, we've got people like Ralph Richardson in this. Serious stuff. He sits them all down, they ask, why are we here? And he is some kind of gatekeeper. He tells them that they are they are all they're all travelling somewhere and they've all got stories. He seems to know things about them. And he picks them out one by one and we move into their stories. So I'm going to do them in the order that they come in the film. And first, it's all through the house. Now, all of these segments are based on other stories, whether Vault of Horror or Tales from the Crypt. And all through the house is a story set on Christmas Eve. And we start with a loving husband putting a present down for his adored wife, sitting down to read the paper and immediately having his head cleaved in twain by his wife, Joan Collins. Now, Joan was in a few Amicus movies, and we remember her now as a big, iconic actress 
who still works on occasion and was in um, Dynasty and all of that. But at this time, she was doing these kind of movies and her career only really picked up when you had the kind of lasciviousness and the, the kind of titillation and would she do that from films like The Stud and the Bitch, both movies that I really love for their ridiculousness. So she's the wife, kills her husband, then immediately goes to the safe and picks out the insurance policy so we can see why she did it. Her daughter is upstairs, shouts her, won't come down the stairs though because it's Christmas Eve. Will she see Santa? Well, if she comes down, she won't get the presents. In the meantime, we hear on the radio that a mentally ill gentleman a psychotic gentleman has escaped from a mental institution and he's dressed as Santa, so be careful. Well, of course, she puts the the, um, the husband down in the, in the cellar, cleverly decants the blood in a glass from the, uh, the living room to the cellar, sprinkles it round nicely. But then there's a knock on the door and a ring on the bell. And of course, it's the man who's escaped. And she bars all the doors and he's banging on the doors. And she's having that to deal with as well while she's just killed her husband. She goes upstairs and she looks upstairs and she sees her daughter's door is open. She goes up there. She's not there. She comes downstairs. Her daughter is just coming out from the front door. Mummy, Santa's here. I've seen him. I let him in. Here he is. The psychotic gentleman comes in, chases Joan Collins, she falls by the fire, and he appears to dispatch her with a neck massage. So she must have gone to her death thinking, ooh, that's relaxing and comfortable, that's nice. It's quite slight this, but there's some lovely moments in it. What doesn't work for me is that you've got seemingly random situations. So you've got the situation with um, the murder, and then a situation with um, with the escapee. Of course, they're linked by Christmas, but it does seem as though they're shoving a load of things in. What is lovely is that all the way through this, Christmas carols are playing. Well, the most grisly things are happening, and that's lovely. It's a very slight piece, but it's a good opener. Gives you some way in. Next up, is that 70s icon always a bit of a an edge with this gentleman really like his work always a bit of a bad boy Ian Hendry this is called reflection of death and we'll we'll see why in a minute and it starts with him telling his wife he's on a business trip but actually he's leaving for good he's leaving to see his girlfriend also his secretary and he doesn't tell his wife that he's leaving her, just that he's going on a business trip. She asks, when will you be back? He says, I don't know, we'll have to see how it works out. <laughs> then he goes to see his children and it's quite, it's quite emotional, the work he does here. Says goodnight to them for one of the last times, probably. One of the children shouts back, goodnight, daddy, and it's very sad for him. As he gets to um, his girlfriend's house, Susan, played by Angela Grant, 
and the removal men have been to her flat. All the stuff's gone to their new house. And she says, oh, seems a shame to let it all go. And he says, well, we've all had things to give up, haven't we, darling? It's really nicely done. They're travelling to the to the property. He's driving. He gets tired. She says, I'll drive. And he falls asleep. Has a nightmare. Wakes up. Looks at the looks through the windscreen, and there's a car coming straight for them. And they crash. He is thrown clear, and then everything's from his point of view. Gets up, can't find where she is. Gets back to his house, opens the door. His wife there. Hello. She screams in terror. He looks through the through the window. What's all this? There's somebody else, another man comforting her. He goes round. To his girlfriend's flat. She lets him in. She says, Carl? It can't be. She says, what do you mean it can't be? She can't see him because in the accident, she was blinded. He says, what's all this new furniture? She said, well, I had to get new furniture. It was two years ago. Carl, you died. Died, he says. He then looks in the mirror, sees his green and grey face and screams and then wakes up from the nightmare he was having in the car looks at his girlfriend says well I'm having a terrible nightmare looks through the mirror there's a car coming at them they crash and you can see where this goes it's really slight and really basic there's not much to it at all it's uh, it's got a bit of a twist in the tail but we're not looking at Tells that you don't expect it here or anything like that, aren't we? It's lifted slightly by what Ian Hendry can do because he's a he's a good actor and can do that very well and deliver that. But really, it doesn't hold our attention for too long. What does though is the next piece up, which is called Poetic Justice. And the reason why this holds our attention and stands out among one of the best of the five is not the story it's one central performance and that would be Peter Cushing he plays Arthur Grimsdyke who is an elderly gent still working recently lost his wife and he's really well liked in the community children like to come round and he finds um, he finds uh, old toys that have been thrown out and uh, refurbishes them and gives them to the children and he's got lots of dogs there and they love they love seeing him and he's looked upon angrily and in a frustrated way by the house across the way it's a father and son property developer team the father says there's no way we can we stop looking at him. Don't be frustrated by it. He can't. He won't sell up. I've asked him, and he doesn't have to. He owns the house, free and clear, which is a very seventies phrase, not used these days. But the son won't leave it alone. He says, "I know. We need to make him sell. I think I know how to do it." And he embarks on a series of actions, which have a terrible impact. First of all, in the middle of the night. Grimsdyke's neighbour is very keen on his roses. So he goes and digs up the roses. And the neighbour instantly blames the dogs. So the police come and take the dogs away. It does seem a little bit quick. 
But Grimstock's obviously very upset about that. And he's referring to his um, his dead wife, who he calls Helen, which is a nice personal touch for Peter Cushing. And he talks to her picture, tries to communicate through seance with her. And um, not content at that, the property developer's son, James, played by Robin Phillips, gets him his... Get, loses him his job brings a council around tells him that really he shouldn't be working at his age and he loses his job but Cushing still has his wife and he still has the children of the of the uh, of the town and he's still happy so next they have the um, the wives of the neighbours round to say he's filthy, that's a filthy house he goes rooting through rubbish you don't want your children there in a house that's dirty and they stop their children coming and he's very upset about that but still he continues but the piece de resistance for the son is that on Valentine's Day he buys cards and sends them to Grimsdyke and they've all got horrible, horrible messages in them. All rhymed messages. The last one implying that he should kill himself. And when the neighbours don't hear from him for a few or see him for a few days, they go round and find him hanging. So they got what they wanted. But they're not happy about it. The father of the property developers pays for the funeral. He says, it's the least I can do. He was a, he was a neighbour. The son is upset by it. And a year to the day, on Valentine's Day, while the son is awake at night doing some work, Grimsdyke returns. And he his visage frightens the son to death. His father finds him slumped over his desk in the morning and with it a note written in blood you were mean and cruel right from the start now you really have no and what's there at the bottom of the page his heart. It's okay this. It's quick it's an interesting story, more interesting than the other two. Less slight, and what you do have is Peter Cushing's central performance. It's heartwarming and lovely, and he's so hard done by. He's got a northern accent, which he likes to do when he's playing um, nice characters. You'll find him as a, an antique shop um, proprietor in one of the other compendium films doing the same thing and they treat him so badly that it's look he really elicits emotional attachment here and it's beautiful the way he does it there are other um, moments of interest particularly that the father smokes a pipe in one scene and the following scene he's got a big cigar on blind he's really got a habit 
but it's cushion that really makes this something special. It's not the best of the, of the five, but it's getting there. The next one is more involved as well and more interesting. And this one is called Wish You Were Here and it's based on the monkey's paw. That famous old horror story. And it stars Richard Green, fading matinee idol at the time. His wife is played by Barbara Murray. And it starts with him being told by his solicitor friend that all their money's gone. In fact, he owes a lot of money. And they're going to have to start selling things, including all the things in the house. And he and his wife start reminiscing about, remember when we got this little piece? Look at this lovely vase, this figure, statuette, it is a statuette that we got in China. Well, there's an inscription on the bottom of it. Well, you've only just realised that. Yeah, it talks about three wishes. Oh, you know, I wish we had lots and lots of money. Ralph, Richard Green, says you really shouldn't do that. We don't know what powers are in that statuette and in that incantation. He's immediately called by his solicitor friend, who's played by Roy Dutrice, very nicely, actually, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And he's told to come to the office straight away, talk about money. Gets in his car, races there, being followed by a rider, a, a motorcycle rider, all in black. When he looks in the mirror, it's the face of death. And of course, he's in a crash and dies. Roy Dutrice goes round to his wife and says, well, you know, and the solicitor tells her that you're a rich woman now. He carried a really hefty life insurance policy. But she doesn't want that. She wants him back. So she makes another wish. I wish he were back. Just as he was before the accident. Door opens. Dry ice and smoke. Undertakers bring in a coffin. Because it wasn't the crash that killed him. It was a heart attack. So she's got one more wish. And she wishes to see him moving about, out and about, not dead. What have you done? Roy Dutrice races in to ask her. And they can hear him from inside and they open the coffin. And of course, he's in the throes of the heart attack and he's absolutely in pain, absolute agony. And she has to kill her own husband. It's nice, simple, good stuff. We know it. I mean, The Monkey's Boy is a great story. We know that. We know it's, it's long lasting. So we know it works. And there's some good work in here as well. Green's all right. He's okay. He's had to do things to make his business empire take off. His wife, Barbara Murray's always got a light touch. Even in films like Up Pompeii, she had a light touch. And Roy Dutrice is great in this. He is the choral figure. He's the one who, who has a moral compass. Right from the beginning, he's telling Ralph, you shouldn't have done those things. He's the one who comments all the way through. And it really works well. It's simple. Again, it's only a couple of, um, of sets, in fact, or a couple of three sets. And it's, uh, it's told very well. But... Probably the main story of the, this is the next up because this is Blind Alleys and it has two fantastic 
central performances. Basic idea is that Major Rogers, just out of the army, has a new job. And he's to be the superintendent of uh, a charity, um, a house, a building that looks after blind men. And they sleep in, so it's a residential house. And the moment he gets there, he's objectionable. And of course, what he does is that he cuts the budgets so there are less blankets. He turns the heating off at eight o'clock in the evening. As he says, you should be in bed. You can't see anything. He gives them less hearty food, much less meat. In the meantime, he and his um, German Shepherd dog Shane are living it up with steak and wine and works of art on the wall. And probably that would the the residents would bear that if it wasn't for George Carter, played by Patrick McGee with a kind of stoic bemusement and frustration, anger throughout the whole thing. He goes to see the Major a couple of times, gets a flea in his ear both times, and they resolve after one of their, um, the residents, one of their friends dies through hypothermia to do something about this. They kidnap the dog put him in a room, lock him up. They kidnap the Major, put him in a different room, lock him up, he can hear the dog barking. And they leave them there for a few days and they are constructing something outside. The Major says, what are you doing out there? Feed my dog. Carter says, oh, he'll be fed all right. Eventually, they let the Major out. And when his eyes adjust to the dark, he sees there is a narrow walkway that's been, a narrow passageway that's been constructed. And when he walks down it, suddenly he's in pain. Because all the way down that passageway, they have put razor blades. He's being cut as he walks down. Carter confronts him. And to try to get out of there, he makes it to the end of the walkway and then the door at the other end of the walkway is opened and his own dog, who hasn't been fed for days, runs out of the room and alights on the first piece of meat he can see. It's a really entertaining piece. And that's mainly because of Major Rogers, the intractable, nasty Major Rogers, played by Nigel Patrick, the little pencil moustache and a haughty manner, and McGee, who
who's been in other um, Amicus or Hammer films, particularly Demons of the Mind, in which he plays a rather deranged doctor. And his work is sometimes hit and miss, but here he has a laser focus and a fantastic intensity. And particularly the way he says Roger's name, Major Rogers, sir, the whole way through. It's a lovely piece of work. It's a a really taut piece of work. The frustration and the anger from people's lives lived. As he says, when we lose one of our uh, senses, the others are heightened. And he tells them, we, if, if we feel an insect crawling across us, if we smell something, the frustration of all of that boils over when the major takes over. And it's a really good, strong piece to end on. Of course, there's a finale. And the first one to go is Ralph. He walks over to an open door, thinks, I'll get out of here. So where where are we going? He then steps out, screams. There's rather a, good for the time, I suppose, ridiculous superimposition of a fiery pit and we presume this is the gates of hell so hang on then if you know that and you've heard Ralph screaming why do the rest of them walk over to the door and go through it you might as well just stay in the ante room I mean you're probably going to die in there but at least it's comfortable so this is a great piece of work. It's fun. It's hokey. It has a nostalgia for me personally of watching this when I was a kid. There's very little gore in it. This is about performances. People who can really work and really turn in something marvellous. And even the smaller performances are solid and work well and you can trust them and they allow those people who give those big performances people like Patrick and uh, and McGee in the final uh, piece people like Ian Hendry certainly Peter Cushing it allows them to root the room to work and these are all quite similar stories and they're quite friendly stories And it's not surprising that we had, as I say, many more compendium movies because you allow half an hour for each or so. They're done quickly and you can move on to something else. But if they didn't have the actors to do that, that never would work. Tales from the Crypt has a remedy rating, a ramble rating of four and a half out of five. Because it's not just nostalgia. This is well made. And it's not surprising it made its money back and more besides. We'll be delving into Amicus and Hammer again. And I personally can't wait. Ta-ta.